0: Hello, and welcome to Bardcast, the Shakespeare podcast. I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And today's episode is about Cymbeline. King of Britain. Yeah, you might not have heard of it. It is a pretty rarely thought of or spoken of or performed play. There's no
1: film version other than the BBC's let's-do-all-of-Shakespeare-on-film thing. Yeah, it's
0: barely even a film version. Mm. So we're doing this one because someone was kind enough to give us money, and indirectly ask for it. Mm-hmm. The, the problem with our fans is that they're too nice. Yeah. Most fans of stuff are actually pretty awful, but ours are so nice that even when they give us money, they're reluctant to actually ask for anything. Even when we specifically asked for ideas for episodes. But yeah, if you uh like tormenting
1: us by forcing us to watch Cymbeline, feel free <laughs> to uh send us more money and
0: make us watch the next worst Shakespeare play. We'll get to our reviews later. Okay. Anyway, Thank you to all the people who have donated the podcast. These people in particular were nice enough to give us a request. We've also received another request for someone to do Twelfth Night. So our next episode will be Twelfth Night. Unless someone intervenes with more money. No, in between (laughs) then, this one is locked. Okay. In between then and now, someone can give another suggestion. Once Mm -hmm. we've actually declared our next one, that one's locked. Mm -hmm.
1: Unless, for say, a performance comes to town and we end up seeing that or something else. Right.
0: Anyway. Let's get to the episode proper. Right. So, Cymbeline is, in the title, The Tragedy of Cymbeline.
1: Though it's really, actually, more of a comedy.
0: Or whatever it is. This is one of those plays where it's, it's obviously not really a tragedy. Anyone looking at it in any sort of definition wouldn't say that it was a tragedy, because nothing really tragic happens in it. The bad guys die, the good guys all get reunited and fall in love. Yeah, everything in the end works out. So what people call it is a romance. People think that it was written at the same time as the other mm-hmm. plays that are called romances.
1: They're late, very late Shakespeare plays. Yeah,
0: or so we think. I mean, it fits mm-hmm. into the style, and it kind of fits into a theoretical evolution of Shakespeare's style, but there's no actual evidence that he wrote this at any given time. There's not even any theoretical connection between this, And the events in the play and any theoretical thing that would have been happening in Shakespeare's life or in popular history at the time. Mm -hmm. So it's timing of late in Shakespeare's career is extremely dicey.
1: There are also some people who think that he collaborated on this with someone else.
0: Yeah. So people call it a romance because romance is the category of we don't know what to call it, so we'll call Mm -hmm. it a romance. It's also sometimes called a problem play. Right. Same reason. Yeah. So in terms of sources, Shakespeare lifted this play from two different sources, which is relatively common for him. Mm -hmm. One is the Roman history, which he's read for other things like uh, Julius Caesar, Antony and Cleopatra, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. He just reads the popular Roman history of the time and then writes a play that has the same plot with a little bit of cheats to make it more interesting. Unfortunately for this one, he chose an extremely boring part of Roman history. And the other half of the play is from a contemporary a story which Shakespeare just lifted the plot of and stuck into his own thing. This one is about a lady being so pure and someone talking about it and bragging about it and someone mm-hmm. going to try to prove that she's yeah. not pure, blah, blah, blah.
1: The play is a philaster, or Love Lies of Bleeding.
0: Right. It's basically a direct lift of the idea.
1: Mm-hmm. So it is quite possible it was the other way around, too, that the philaster lifted it from this.
0: possible, but I think that generally people conclude that it's the other way around. Mm. that Shakespeare lifted the story.
1: Yeah, which it helps them date it, because they do know when Philaster was published.
0: Right. This is yet another play that was only printed in the first folio, mm-hmm. and all the, all the successive copies are just copies of that. Which is one thing we can't thank the first folio for.
1: <laughs> Sorry, I just don't like this Yeah, one. <laughs> we'll get to our review later.
0: We don't have any sort of textual comparisons, so if there's any errors in it, they're just where there's no way to fix Mm it. So historically, this has been viewed as a very minor play. People celebrate the character of Imogen.
1: She's another uh, female character who dresses up like a man to, uh, well, partially seek out her lost love and partially to not get murdered by him.
0: Yeah, she's one of Shakespeare's strong female characters, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And it's been put on a few times throughout history, sometimes to great acclaim, but it's still very rare. So what is this play about? That's a difficult
1: thing. Partially, it's about uh, being pure. Like, uh, Imogen is constantly, people are constantly trying to get her to cheat on her secret husband or to ditch him or. Yeah. She's being tested
0: in a lot of ways. And this is a very common thing for Shakespeare's time. I mean, there's this entire celebration of Elizabeth I as the Virgin Queen. Mm -hmm. Like, that's this incredibly powerful thing about her image. They named Virginia after Elizabeth as the Virgin Queen. Yes. And we've got this entire idea of forbidden love... And, you know, Imogen and Leonidas Posthumus can't be together because the queen has intervened to separate them. Mm. And we've got this idea that's very common in Shakespeare's time of royalty being superior. Not just in terms of culture or in education or something, but in their very breeding, they are superior human beings. We see that everyone likes Imogen, even when she's unconscious, they mm-hmm. find her to be a superior person, and everyone loves the two princes in the story, and they are just superior in essentially every way. They are pretty great. They are they are two of the better characters.
1: Yes. Like, if the play were just the two princes and Imogen came in halfway through, that would be a much better play.
0: <laughs> okay. So... This is two stories, like we said earlier. It's lifted from two, two stories from history. Mm-hmm. So the first one is Imogen's story. She definitely is the most important yeah. character in the play. So her story is. She
1: secretly marries, uh, Leonidas.
0: Before the beginning of the play. They're married and the the king is furious and banishes the husband and she's being pressured into marry this complete loser named Clawton. Who is the queen's son from a former marriage. Yeah, she's plotting to try to get her son to to a higher position. Mm -hmm. So, uh, her husband is tricked into believing that she's been unfaithful and Mm -hmm. so she runs away, disguises as a boy, meets... These princes out in the wilderness.
1: We'll cu- we'll go over this whole thing when we do the plot summary too. Yeah.
0: So she goes in through some adventures, and then everything kind of works out in the end. Mm-hmm. And there's also the story of
1: the big political me- mess up with Rome, because right. King uh, Cymbeline is basically a has to give tribute to Rome
0: and he hasn't been doing it lately because of the entire mix up with Antony and Cleopatra and Augustus Caesar and, and all the queen that. has been telling him hey don't
1: pay your taxes
0: yeah this sort of plot really starts off with the ambassador to Britain from Rome coming and saying hey give us our money and he refuses so mm. climax of the story is the battle where the romans invade to get their money back technically
1: the climax is actually after the battle
0: well the big action piece
1: Which happens off-screen, mostly.
0: Mostly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's this story of Britain kind of standing up for themselves, which is a very Shakespearean Mm -hmm. thing. These foreign invaders from across the sea, like the Spanish in uh, Elizabeth's time. Mm -hmm. Pretty common symbols. So this leads to two very different... Themes and moods and feelings for the play because the Roman history is very clearly set in Roman history. They re- repeatedly refer to Augustus as the Roman Emperor. They re- demand tribute from these British branches of the Roman Empire. And this is a very, you know, historically grounded plot. But the entire plot about Imogen and his wife being banished to Italy and the Italians there being very lascivious and mm. c- conniving and all this obsession about the purity and virginity is very much of Elizabeth's time, of Shakespeare's time. They have c- two completely different moods, but they're set in the same yeah, play. Yeah, and
1: that's part of what makes the play kind of almost harder to watch, too, because either one of those could... Well, one of those could have been an interesting play. <laughs> And the other one could have gone off and been an okay play, but when they're smashed together, it doesn't. There's so much time wasted on exposition that it yeah. doesn't feel like anything's ever we'll going to happen. We'll get to, to that, happen. definitely.
0: The movie version that we saw actually, interestingly, abandoned the entire Roman idea and basically said, yes, this is Elizabethan times. Everyone's wearing Elizabethan collars. They've got the entire pseudo medieval dress and attitude. And they just keep complaining about Romans. Yeah. Yeah, they talk about Romans and Augustus Caesar, but they don't do anything.
1: Yeah. The setting is... Theoretically ancient Rome. Yeah. And Britain. Yeah. And because it it mostly takes place in the castle of Cymbeline. Yeah. King Cymbeline is. Uh, but there's some also some that also takes place in wherever exile is,
0: probably Rome. <laughs> yeah, somewhere in Italy.
1: Yeah. And then there's some stuff that takes place in the wilderness where the brothers have been living. Yeah. And some stuff that takes place in the town of Milford Haven.
0: Right. Milford Haven was a place that was relatively important in uh, Shakespeare's time because that would be a place where Ireland would come to invade, theoretically. Mm. But in the Roman times, I can't really... One, imagine imagine it would be called Milford Haven because English wasn't around yet. But also, I don't think it was particularly important. It might not have even been a city at the time. I, my research isn't really clear on that. So it's a little n- another piece of historical randomness, I guess you'd call it. It doesn't matter that much, though. Yeah. Characters.
1: Yeah, there are a few characters in this play. Uh, some of them are good, and most of them aren't.
0: Yeah, it's definitely Imogen's play. Yeah, Imogen is,
1: like, that. despite it being called Cymbeline, Imogen is the mover of the plot for the most
0: part. Yeah, Cymbeline is barely a character in this play. Mm-hmm.
1: Imogen is the daughter of uh, the king. Yeah, She's married to uh, Posthumous Leonidas. Right, who
0: is a war hero who nearly, you know, his family yeah. died, so he's called Posthumous because of this war story. It doesn't really matter.
1: Mm-hmm. Anyway, she has a servant, but... It's Posthumus is her sort is her secret husband who she married before, right before the play uh, because she's in love with him but her father
0: wants her to marry someone important. Mm-hmm. So then we've got the guy that she's supposed to marry, Clawton, who is just this awful awful character he's
1: the uh son of the queen who is from a previous marriage so they're not actually siblings
0: right now when i say he's awful i mean in the sense of he's supposed to be awful Mm. like he's supposed to be the guy who you hold your head and say oh man i can't believe that someone is that stupid yeah he's not awful
1: like evil awful he's just awful like well he is evil but it's more of a just a bullying, stupid evil. Yeah,
0: he's like someone in the office or something like that. You feel embarrassed (laughs) on his behalf. Yeah,
1: it it is pretty sad how everyone just manages to put one over on him all the time. Yeah, people
0: just are almost mocking him to his Mm -hmm. face. And then there's, his
1: mother is the queen who is just constantly out to get uh, Imogen, like She's trying to get her... Ki- after after she refuses to marry her son, she's trying to get Imogen killed.
0: Yeah, at first you think she's just kind of okay and that she'd prefer that Imogen marries Clawden, but by the mm. end it turns out that she is truly a villain.
1: And she's also just the one who got the king to stop paying his taxes, which results in the whole Roman problem. Yeah. Uh, the king himself is kind of just an angry guy, it seems, most of the time. Yeah,
0: the king largely exists just to get things going and then at the end to be surprised at everything that just happened. Um he doesn't actually do much throughout the play.
1: Oh yes. And then there are the princes. Basically the gist of that is twenty years ago or so one of the king's trusted advisors, Belarius, uh was accused of conspiring with the Romans. And was thrown out, and on his way out, he kidnapped the king's two s- twin sons. Right,
0: he said, Doubt my loyalty, will you? I'll steal your children. Mm-hmm.
1: And that's why the king, partially why the king is so upset, and why Imogen is supposedly the only heir.
0: Yeah, we've got these two princes being raised in the wilderness.
1: They're pretty much interchangeable with each other.
0: Right, but they're pretty cool.
1: Yeah, and then there's a few other smaller characters, like Cornelius, the doctor, who makes fake poison for the queen... Yep, we'll get to that. Yep, basically it's the poison that... It's the poison from Romeo and Juliet that just makes it look like you're dead.
0: Yeah, also known as plot poison. Yep.
1: There is Iacomo, who is this slimy Italian guy that uh, Posthumus meets, who basically gets into a bet with him that he can seduce Imogen. Yep. Uh, And then there's Pisanio, who is Posthumus' servant who is, like, the character who basically ends up saving everyone's life by just refusing to listen to anyone's stupid
0: ideas. Yeah, he's the loyal servant. Yeah. He helps out both both Posthumus and Imogen. Basically,
1: everyone he meets just tells him, "I want." next time you see this person, kill them. And he's just like, <laughs> okay, boss. And then he goes and warns the person that they're about to die. Yeah, he's
0: not horrible. Is yeah. his main
1: virtue, I guess. Mm. And then there's the uh, main Roman guy, Lucius.
0: Yeah, he just basically comes in and says, we would prefer if you paid your taxes. Mm-hmm. And then Cymbeline is like,
1: "We will never pay our taxes."
0: Okay, so oh, the plot. The plot. All right. Act one. In the past, I have said, "Look at how well Shakespeare starts plays. He's not a genius." This one. Exactly. Normally, I give him all the credit in the world for starting plays, but this is like a textbook example of how to not write a story. He has two people who have no relevance to the story come in and say, "Look at this." All of these things have been happening recently. Did you hear about this? Did you hear about that? Mm -hmm. They literally go over everything that's happened before the play and say, okay, this is where we are now. This is terrible writing because we don't know who any of these people are. We don't care about Mm -hmm. any of them yet. If I was putting on this play, the first thing I would do is cut out this scene. You know, they're part of the scene because everything else that happens, they clearly establish what's going on.
1: But So here's what happens, starting with the important stuff. Imogen and Posthumus are married, and as symbols of their marriage, Imogen gives a ring to Posthumus, and Posthumus gives a bracelet to Imogen.
0: Yeah, and those are those are plot points to remember them. <laughs> <laughs> and the Queen wants to intimidate them to you know stop the marriage, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And Cymbeline
1: uh, gets really angry and banishes po- banishes Posthumus, and. Because he's a, he's worried that if he marries Imogen, then he'll become the king after him, and he's he thinks that it's just a big power play by him.
0: Yeah. I think if you start it with the Imogen and Posthumus talking to each other, it really is pretty good, because they have good words of love between each other. They're good at defying the king. I think that the play is a lot weaker, because you start with these guys just talking about what's about to happen instead of just showing what happens.
1: Mm-hmm. And then it goes into the queen plotting, saying... Okay, doctor, give me that poison I asked for. And he's like, "Are you sure you're not doing this for
0: evil?" <laughs> and she's like,
1: "Don't worry. Why would I do this for evil?" He off-screen says, "Yes, I've switched the po- the deadly poison with a poison that just mimics death." Oh, and then one more thing: yes. Imogen goes to her chambers and locks herself in. Right. So, scene two:
0: we've got Clawton's introduction. <laughs> uh, he's got his two assistants saying, "What a good job you did in that duel you did just a moment ago." and then turning to the audience and saying, he is such an idiot and a loser.
1: Mm-hmm. Can't get no respect even from his servants. <laughs> yeah.
0: He, he talks very proudly about himself, and then they cut him down. It sort of works. It's mm-hmm. fine. Scene three, <laughs> we've got Imogen and Pisiano, the, the faithful servant. P- Pisiano says that I watched posthumous go, and Imogen has some pretty words about how she would have liked to see him for as long as possible. And scene four. Down to Rome. Yeah, this is the big establishing scene for a lot of what happens okay. in the rest. There's a bunch of characters here, but only two of them matter. Yeah, we've got Posthumus and Iachimo. Yakimo. Yakimo. So, Posthumus says, my wife is so pure, and Iachimo says, how pure is she? <laughs> yeah. Basically, though, Yakimo uh, just says,
1: bah, no woman is that pure. Exactly. And to prove it, I will go and seduce her. Mm-hmm. And then he says, but let's ha- let's make this a bet. If I seduce her, you have to give me that ring you keep bragging about. Yep. If I don't seduce her, I have to give you all of my money, and then we fight a duel.
0: Yeah, Posthumus has a very interesting bargaining position. He says, if you seduce my wife, fine, but if you fail, I'll kill you. <laughs> Mm-hmm. An odd little way to, to go about, and it. and it's not like they, they just jump right
1: into this. They do spend a lot of time arguing about it first. Yeah, and
0: there's a reasonable man trying to say, "Calm down, guys!" Mm-hmm. But obviously, that wouldn't get the plot going.
1: Iacomo comes off as like a half—he's not quite as good at his being a roguish jerk as you know a lot of other characters are.
0: Yeah, he's just kind of—he almost seems like he's just there to keep the. He's story kind of going. a discount Iago. <laughs> Yeah, that brings us to scene five. This is just Pisiano, the servant, getting the fake poison from the queen. And the queen says to him, this is good stuff, so if you're ever sick or anything, take this.
1: Yeah, well, I think, wasn't she telling him to, like, bring it to his master or something? Yeah, bring this to Imogen, like, this is good stuff, but it's Mm -hmm. actually bad stuff. Right. Then we go to uh, scene six where uh, Pisano comes and tells Imogen, hey, this guy came from Rome. He knows your husband. And it's Iacomo come to try and seduce her.
0: Yep. Then there's uh, seduction where he's introduced by uh, Posthumus' letter, which says that this is a great guy, so treat him fine. Mm -hmm. He acts completely smitten with her and she just keeps shooting him down. His entry way is to say, Oh, your husband is so pleased now that he's in Rome. He speaks of nothing but happiness. There are other men who miss their wives, but not him. So just trying to open mm-hmm. the door, but it completely fails. Mm-hmm. He makes the advance and so she just completely shoots him down. Mm-hmm. And at the end he's like, well, okay. But I do have this
1: trunk, uh, and I'm worried it'll get stolen. Could you keep it in your room or something? Well, first
0: he says, sorry, I was just kidding. Oh, I didn't yeah. actually mean to try to seduce you. It was just I'm just too seductive. It was, <laughs> it was just a test <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, of whether you're easily seduced. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so he's got this trunk, like you mentioned, that he would like delivered to the emperor. And so she offers to go along with that.
1: Mm-hmm. And so he, she just has the trunk put in her bedchamber where it'll be
0: safe. It's a good thing that she agreed to that or else none of this would work. Well, and that she came up with the idea of putting it in her bedchamber. Exactly. So this is just establishing everything. And that's Act 1. Like all of Act 1's for Shakespeare is just making sure everything is in place, checking all the check marks. Act
1: 2, Clotten is uh, coming in and being like, look how awesome I am. And those guys are
0: like, yeah, awesome. Mm-hmm. I think that these are fun scenes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of little details where they poke fun at him that are fun. Mm -hmm. And then they comment,
1: like, they can't believe the queen, who's extremely intelligent, had such a stupid son.
0: (laughs) These things really only work with the actual performance. Mm -hmm. Then we get to
1: scene two,
0: the creepiest scene. Yeah, so Imogen says, you know, I'm sad, I've got to go to sleep. The servant leaves. Iachimo emerges. Yakimo emerges from the trunk, which he had hidden himself. Yep. This seems rather silly to us, I think. but mm-hmm. and, and once he
1: slips out of the trunk, he starts narrating, okay, I'm in here, so I can scope out this bedchamber, so I can tell uh, Posthumist how great the bedchamber was, so he believes that I actually did manage to seduce her. Anyways, aside from scoping out the chamber, he also decides to steal her bracelet. Yep. And then he... Uh, Looks at her a lot and is like, oh, she has a mole under her left breast. etc." Yes, which I wonder how they pulled off on stage. Hmm,
0: a very odd scene, the way that he won't shut up. Mm-hmm. But with Shakespeare, I mean, everything he has is through writing.
1: And then he's like, uh-oh, time is passing, back in the
0: trunk. Yeah. <laughs> it's a really audacious plan. Mm-hmm. That brings us to scene three. Back to Clotin. Yeah. So this is him trying to get Imogen to emerge from her chamber mm-hmm. and performing a goofy song. Yep. Basically, he's just camped out right outside her door Yeah, with a bunch
1: of musicians. And then Cymbeline comes along and is like,
0: come on! Eventually, after... Claughton ins insisting on coming in. A lady comes out. The lady also takes shots at him because everyone makes fun of Clotton. Mm-hmm. And uh, Imogen eventually emerges, says, uh, thank you for bribing my servants for letting you in. But I still say no. Mm-hmm. And then Imogen notices that her bracelet is missing. So Clodden says that, you know, you should like me, and she says, Wert thou the son of Jupiter, and no more but what thou art beside, thou wert too base to be his groom, that is, her current wife's groom, thou wert dignified enough, even to the pint of envy, if twere made comparative to your virtues, to be styled the under hangman of his kingdom, and hated for being preferred so well. So even if you were the assistant hangman in my husband's kingdom, people would think that you were still doing too well. hmm and she continues insulting
1: him, and he eventually storms off, saying he'll be revenged.
0: Yeah. She says that his meanest garments that have ever hath but cliffed his body is dearer in my respect than all the hairs above thee. So his worst piece of, piece of clothing is better than you. Mm-hmm. Then we're on to scene four, back in Rome. Yachimo returns. And like, hey, guess what I did? Yep. He lays out his case pretty well. This is, I think, this is a relatively good scene. Mm-hmm. He lays out his details one at a time. He first he starts off by just talking about her in general. Talks about the the room that she was in. Apparently, it's got a lot of details, which I really doubt they had in Shakespeare's original performance. Talking about it's a tapestry of Cleopatra and all of this stuff. Posthumus admits that these are true, but that anyone could have found these out just by asking around. He produces more details about the room. Still anyone could have found Mm -hmm. this out. Then he's like, and bracelet? Yeah, he produces the
1: bracelet, which is shocking. Then he mentions the mole. Mm -hmm. And then uh, Posthumus uh, just starts shouting about how he is going to kill her.
0: Yeah, he is completely convinced the reasonable guy in the room who is still there from the last time. It's actually his house. Yeah, it says that, look, it is possible that you're wrong about this, and Posthumus will not be convinced by the end of it. After hearing all of the details, he he cannot believe that anything but that his wife must be murdered.
1: And then he storms off, and Filario and Yakima are like, maybe we should fix this. (laughs) (laughs) Then scene five is just him uh, ranting.
0: Yeah, it's a pretty good speech, I think. He's angry. Mm-hmm. Okay, that brings us over to Act Three. The problem with this play is that it takes so long for anything to happen. Exactly. We just got through all of Act Two, and basically the only thing that happened is that Posthumus has been convinced that Imogen has been unfaithful. Yeah. It's basically the only thing that's happened.
1: It's a long play, and not enough happens in it. Yeah.
0: Act Three. So, this is the scene where they refuse to pay their taxes.
1: Yep, very interesting.
0: Yeah, maybe Cymbeline's
1: biggest scene. Basically, Lucia says, if you don't pay your taxes, we will uh, invade. Mm-hmm. And scene two is Pisanio getting a letter from Posthumus
0: saying, please kill my wife. Or, if you will not kill my wife, bring her to this place so I can kill her. He is innocuous around Imogen, of course, saying that simply we must go. There's another letter just for Imogen to say to go to Milford Haven under less uh, suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. That they're going to meet there instead of her being murdered there.
1: Mm -hmm. Imogen and Pisanio decide to sneak out of the castle.
0: Yeah. And then
1: suddenly we jump to Wales, where there's a couple brothers in a cave.
0: Yeah, this has been mentioned at the very beginning of the play, as we talked about earlier. They talk about everything that's happened beforehand, Mm -hmm. and we finally get to the actual lost princes. Mm
1: -hmm. With Belarius, the servant who stole them. They've basically grown up thinking he is their father.
0: Yep. And the dialogue is good here. The two princes and their supposed father have a good relationship. They've got good Shakespeare poetry going here. But their father is insistent that they stay here, that they not go on adventures. But their princely blood insists that they live their lives. He says, Haven't you heard my stories about how bad the court is, how it's a nest of vipers? And uh, one of the princes says, what should we speak of when we are as old as you? When we shall hear the rain and wind be dark December, how in this our pinching cave, because they live in a cave, mm-hmm. shall we discourse the freezing hours away? We have seen nothing. We are beastly, subtle as the fox for prey, like warlike as the wolf for what we eat. Our valor is to chase what flies. Our cage we make a choir, as doth a prisoned bird, and sing our bondage freely. They're imprisoned. They're not men. They're, mm-hmm. they, they'll have nothing to look back upon. And
1: then after they go out, he like has a little speech about how uh, he can't believe
0: how their princely blood is shining through, even though they were raised in a cave. Yeah, how hard it is to hide the sparks of nature. These boys know little they are sons to the king. And I actually like this scene. It's, yeah, it's really quite- good writing. Mm-hmm. And then he goes on to explain exactly what happened,
1: just in case you weren't sure. And just in case you missed the first time, mm-hmm. this was explained. And then we're back to Imogen and Pisanio, who are tromping through the woods. He basically says, uh, By the way, when you get to Milford Haven, your husband is going to kill you.
0: Well, I am going to kill you. Yeah. Yeah, and here's the letter where he tells me to kill you. Yep. Th- there's actually a good reaction to that. Pisanio says, What shall I need to draw my sword? The paper hath cut her throat already. They basically go back and forth trying to figure out what to do, and eventually
1: they come up with the standard solution of disguise her as a man.
0: Well, first... She's so struck that he says that she has died already. Oh, yeah. She wants him to kill her. Yeah, she's so intensely harmed by this that she insists that he kill her and that she would kill herself if there weren't a prescription against it in the old Bible. Augustus Caesar Bible? Um. Hey, that's a good point, too. Yeah, the Romans were all about killing themselves. Yeah. They they did that all the time. Anyway, this is yet another example of our Elizabethan and Roman cultures getting all mixed up. Mm-hmm. So, Imogen will flee as a man. And Imogen is given the poison oh, yeah, yeah. cure. In case she gets
1: sick. Yeah. Because, once again, Pisanio thinks it's medicine. Yeah. But the queen
0: who gave it to him thought it was poison. Yeah.
1: But the doctor who gave it to her knew it was actually fake poison that just acts like it kills you. Yeah.
0: This is an incredibly weird plan by the Queen, by the way. Just leave them poison around them and hope they take it. <laughs> yeah, this brings us to scene five. Lucius declares war. Mm-hmm. he's had enough of this, and he's formally declaring that the Romans are angry at them uh, and meanwhile,
1: Clauden uh runs into Pisanio and's like, "Hey, I want you
0: to kill someone for me." <laughs> Imogen is missing mm-hmm. Clauden learns of this from Pisiano. And he, for reasons that I aren't really very good, decides that he will dress up as Posthumus because of Imogen's comment about Posthumus' clothing being better than Eclaton. Yeah, and then Pisanio tells him to go to Milford Haven. Yeah, so that we can all meet up later. Mm-hmm. So then we cut back to Imogen in scene six. This is in front of the prince's cave. Yep. And Imogen is dressed as a boy. So mm-hmm. she's desperate. She doesn't have any food or anything. So she decides she'll sneak into this cave to see if there's any food there. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the princes return right as this happens. And when Imogen comes out, she says, Oh, I'm sorry, I've taken. I've, I've been taking your food. I'm willing to pay you. I was going to pay you. And because they are princes and she is a princess, even though none of them know this fact...
1: They get along famously. Yeah. They- also, they are her brothers.
0: Yeah. They actually say, you are like a brother to me. You are my brother, I am your brother. They Mm -hmm. fall in such affection. So it's just this kind of Shakespearean idea that the royalty are so naturally pure and good that it still is true even when they have no idea Mm. and when they've been raised in a cave.
1: Yeah, and then there's scene seven, back in Rome, a couple centers like, welp, war. Yeah, we sure are Roman. (laughs) And then we get on to act four, back to the cave.
0: Yeah. So, yet again, not much has even happened, even through Act 3. Mm-hmm.
1: Imogen is now dis- disguised as a boy yep, and hanging out with her brothers.
0: And so we're into Act 4, Clotten again, always yep. charming. And he's just like, I'm where I should be. Yep, I'm looking around in the woods near Milford Haven, which happens to be the place where the prince's cave is. Mm-hmm. So he wanders nearby and confronts the princes. This is set as Scene 2.
1: Yep. And then scene two, Imogen is feeling sick, so
0: she's got this medicine. Mm-hmm. So she'll just go lay down and take this me- medicine. Yep. And they will just hang out outside and go hunting. Mm-hmm. This is yet another example of royal superiority. Belaria says, Oh noble strain, oh worthiness of nature, breed of greatness, cowards father cowards, and base things sire base. It's just this idea that if you're good, Your children are good. If you're bad, your children are bad. Mm -hmm. Just like in real life.
1: Hmm. One of the brothers confronts Clotten. Yeah,
0: this is the good part. Clotten comes in, he's a Claude, and the princes don't care for him at all. Mm -hmm. Two of them say... Uh,
1: The the prince and the father.
0: Yeah, one prince and the father leave. And so this leads Clotten with one of the princes. Clotten insists that he's this noble man, I'm the son of a queen, I'm far better than you. He says to the prince that he... Thou art a robber, a lawbreaker, a villain. Yield thee, thief. And the prince is not impressed. To who? (laughs) To thee? What art thou? Have not I an arm as big as thine? A heart as big? Thy words I grant are bigger, for I wear not my dagger in my mouth. Say what thou art. Why should I yield to thee? Thou shalt know I am son to the queen. I'm sorry for it, not seeming so worthy as thy birth. So he just just takes shots at him throughout. Yeah. People instinctively make fun of <laughs> yes, yeah.
1: And then Clotten just attacks him, and they exit, fighting.
0: So then the other two return, and they say, oh, where'd they go? And then the prince returns. Holding Clotten's head. <laughs> in his hand, which is awesome. Mm-hmm. Talk about comeuppance. Yeah. Yeah. I really like these princes, actually. And one of them says, well, I cut off his head. He didn't get any dumber. (laughs) Not Hercules could have knocked out his brains, for he had none. Mm -hmm. And then Belarius, uh, their fake father, starts freaking out because he just killed
1: the son of the queen.
0: Yeah, thinks that things will go badly for them. The princes aren't too concerned. (laughs) (laughs) They're just basically (laughs) high-fiving. Yeah, the other prince is mostly concerned that he didn't get to be involved in murdering the son of the queen. Blarius yet again says about the royal nature shining, "'Tis wonder that an invisible instinct should frame them to royalty unlearned, honor untaught, civility not seen from other, valor that wildly grows in them, but yields a crop as, it, as if it had been sown." They say that they've thrown Clotten's head in the river, in embassy to his mother, his body's hostage for his return. So they're going to go send his head as a prisoner, and they can get the body if they get payment. Mm-hmm
1: and then suddenly one of the brothers comes back and having found imogen supposedly dead and also still supposedly male
0: yeah they are not pleased by this at all they're like no they decide to have a double funeral because even though Clawton is a clod they will still give him the burial worthy of someone of noble birth mhm they have a goofy little song that i don't know maybe it would work if you did it properly maybe but it's about how, now that you're dead, you don't have all of the various problems that come with being alive. You know, fear not slander, thou hast finished joy and moan, no witchcraft charm thee, ghost unlaid mm-hmm. forbear thee. So it's just nothing bad will happen to you anymore because that, thy worldly task has done.
1: And then they all leave her alone, next to Clotten's body.
0: Right. There's actually a funny little continuity, Eric. Clotten has been decapitated, of course, mm-hmm. and the, the father says that they should put flowers upon their Faces. Ah. There's only one face left in that particular game. Yes. And then, uh, as soon as everyone leaves, Imogen wakes up. Immediately. Uh, There's a nice little detail in this that when she's waking up, she says things that don't mean anything in context, so presumably she was dreaming, and now she's finishing the sentence. Mm -hmm. I I really like that. It seems like something they'd put in a modern story. Mm -hmm. And then she was wondering, who's this lying down next to me? It's someone in Posthumus's clothing!
1: And therefore she assumes that Posthumus is dead, lying next to her.
0: Yeah, there's actually an interesting point where she says that he has the same body, Uh, He has the foot mercurial, his martial thigh, the bronze of Hercules. Mm -hmm. So, apparently, (laughs) without his face, he actually is a decent guy.
1: Or she's just saying that because she thinks he's posthumous, and so she decided to praise him as much as possible. It's
0: true. So she assumes that the poison that she was given was a trick by Pisiano. She smears Clawton's blood all over his face to give color to her face. Yeah, and then, while weeping over the body, Romans come in. Yep, and this is a really strong example of the inherent nobility of royalty, they fall for her. (laughs) They think this boy who is smeared with blood lying on top of a corpse asleep is natural officer material. Mm -hmm. Okay, youth, you're going to work for us now. Yeah, your name is Fidele. That's all I need to hear. You can work for me Mm -hmm. as my personal attendant. Mm -hmm. And then back to Cymbeline. In scene three. Yeah, we find out that the queen is sick and dying. Because she's
1: a bad person, mostly.
0: And that the Romans are here, that the war is properly begun. So this brings us back to Wales with the princes, who, of course, would like to join the war because of their noble blood. Their father is initially reluctant, just thinks that they should go hide in the mountains. But Mm -hmm. they will not be refused to do their duty in the
1: war. And he has a good line. The time seems long, their blood thinks scorn." till it fly out and show them princes born. He, he, in the end, decides that it's best that they would all go and... Start murdering Romans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then we're on to Act 5, and Posthumus finally comes back.
0: Yep. So he's back into Britain, but he's joined the Roman army as his way to trick his way back to Britain. So he's come here to, as a Roman soldier, but he cleverly decides that he will join the British army, by changing his clothing. Hopefully he got away from the Roman camp before he actually did yeah. that.
1: And he's also really upset that he killed uh, Imogen now.
0: Yeah, which it seems reasonable, that mm-hmm. he might, in a, the passion of the moment, decide to do that. Yeah.
1: Passion of the moment, decide to write a letter
0: instructing his servant to murder her. Yeah, I mean, that's that's still passion moments, I think. And then then we get to the big battle scene. Right, this is actually one of Shakespeare's longer stage instructions with no dialogue. It's got the Roman army at one door, and the Briton army at another, which has (laughs) got to be an interesting piece of staging there. But
1: basically, enter Lucius, Iacomo, and the Roman army at one door, and the Briton army at another, Leonatus Posthumus following, like a poor soldier, they march over and go out, alarms, then enter again in skirmish, Iacomo and Posthumus. He vanquisheth and disarmeth Iacomo, and then leaves him.
0: Right. So we've just got the armies march across the stage. There's a little battle between Giacomo and Posthumus. And then
1: Iacomo has a little speech about it. what did I do?
0: Yeah, he realizes that he's done a bad thing now that he's on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So this is where we get some more stage directions. The battle continues. The, the Britons lose. They're pushed back. Cymbeline is taken by the Romans. Mm-hmm. Then enter the princes and their supposed father who the save rescue. the day. Oh. Yeah. They rescue the king and defeat basically all of the Romans. The Romans realize that they are defeated. I really wonder how they did this battle, supposedly between great armies, with at most 30 people, <laughs> mm-hmm. with the armies being pushed back and forth. It's always
1: difficult uh, yeah.
0: to do that on stage. Yeah, especially with the way that the Shakespearean stage, we think, was built, where they're coming out of doors. That would just be... So this leads us to the scene, they talk about what just happened in the battle. Unlike the other scenes where they just talk about what happened, I think this is appropriate because it kind of places the true heroism of the princes. Like, this one actually says something about what happened, how the two princes were these great warriors. They by themselves saved the war. Yeah, and then
1: Posthumus is walking around ranting to himself and runs into a couple of British
0: soldiers and say, who say, Hey, who are you? And he says, I'm a Roman! Well, he says, please kill me. yeah. Like, he wants to die at this point because he's so sick of it, what he's done.
1: And they decide to capture him and take him before the king instead. Okay,
0: so then we go to the prison where uh, Posthumus is imprisoned. And he continues to rant to himself. And this is a goofy scene if ever there was one. Mm-hmm. So, he talks about how bad it is to be in prison and how he'd rather be dead, blah blah blah. He falls asleep, and ghosts come to his body, and sing a Very long poem Mm. song thing, Mm -hmm. where they, among other things, ask Jupiter for help. Jupiter does show up. (laughs) (laughs) Jupiter being
1: the Roman uh, chief god.
0: Yeah. We also think of him as Zeus? Yes. In the Greek system. Yes. So he says, I've had enough of you stupid ghosts, but I will help you out, actually. And they leave a sheet of paper for him, which has a prophecy on it, and he reads it, and it says that, "'When as a lion's whelp shall, to himself unknown, without seeking, find, and he be embraced by a piece of tender air, and when from a stately cedar shall be lopped branches which, being dead many years, shall after revive, be jointed to the old stock, and freshly grow, then shall posthumous end his miseries, Britain be fortunate, and flourish in peace and plenty.' And he says, This is nonsense <laughs> mm-hmm. which is true. <laughs> right, so then the jailer arrives and they've got a little bit of back and forth of actually uh almost joking yep. actual no, actually joking yeah. about how posthumous would like to die <laughs> mm-hmm. and the jailer's ready to accommodate him. Yep. And he says that well, at least you won't have anything after this. It's a heavy reckoning, but the comfort is you shall have no more payments, fear no more tavern mills, which are often the sadness of parting as the procuring procuring of mirth. You used to have all these problems, but now you're going to be dead, so that's nice. Mm-hmm. And then a messenger comes and says, "Hey, uh, you, come. The king wants to see you." Posthumus says,
1: "I am called to be made free." There's a great line, though the uh, gallery's like. T- Exclaiming about how he's never met someone who wanted to die so much. Unless a man would marry a gallows and beget young gibbets, I never saw one so prone. <laughs> uh, and then we're on to scene five, the probably the last scene. It's, it's the one where everyone suddenly starts explaining what's going
0: on to each other. Yeah, wow, this is a long scene. I know. Yeah, this is the final scene, also known as everything is resolved. Basically, you can just assume every living character is in this scene. <laughs> I think that's actually true. Yeah. So it starts off with, who were these heroes that saved the war? Mm -hmm. And of course, our princes and their supposed fathers show up.
1: Yeah, and they're, you know, no one's revealed anything yet.
0: Yeah. Then the
1: doctor comes in.
0: Yeah, says that the queen is dying, and she has confessed this ludicrous list of horribleness. She just (laughs) volunteered for no reason, that she hated the king, that she only did it for the money... That she tried to poison Imogen. Oh, actually, that shows up later. But that everything she's done is wrong, and the king is just like, there wasn't even a hint of this. This is madness. If
1: she hadn't said this is her dying words, I would never have believed this.
0: Yeah, yeah, even if she had just said it normally, he wouldn't have believed it, because it's so crazy.
1: Oh, and that she was slowly poisoning the king over time. Yeah, it's, this is so weird. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, it's not my fault, she was really hot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that didn't happen. Uh, mine eyes were not in fault, for she was beautiful. Fair enough. My ears, they heard her flattery, nor my heart, that thought her like her seeming.
0: Well, yeah. Very strange. Mm. Her, The queen's complete evilness.
1: Oh yeah, there's also a soothsayer.
0: Oh yes, uh, that'll come up. Yep. So, Lucius concedes that they have lost, but... He would like it if they could take care of this person that he's grown very affectionate for, this young boy who has worked for him for a fraction of a day, <laughs> mm-hmm. who is also known as Fidele, who is also known as our hero. Heroine. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Imogen. Yeah. Like, he says, I'd like to save you. Imogen says, I don't really care what happens to you. And then
1: Simbling says, I will give you a favor. And then Lucia says, don't use this favor to save my life, kid. Yeah, And he says, oh, I do not beg thee, beg my life, good lad, and yet I know thou will. And the image is like, no, no, I actually have something else that I want. Yeah, I didn't want to save
0: <laughs> you. I don't even like, who are you?
1: Oh, she says, uh, I'm actually a English, not Roman, so king, can I talk to
0: you in private? Yeah, so like any just random Englishman, you're allowed to just have a conversation with the king. And meanwhile, the princes are off to the
1: side saying, Does Isn't that the uh, dead
0: kid? Yeah, yeah. And of course, Pisanio notices, because he was the one who helped her disguise as a boy. He says, it is my mistress, since she is living, let the time run on to good or bad. So he has no plan. Yeah, everyone's just like, we want to see how this plays out. (laughs) (laughs) So the king and the princess have presumably actually revealed themselves, and... Imogen has a demand. She wants to know why Yakimo has that ring. Yakimo says, oh, I'd hate to tell you because although it tortures me to have done it, it would torture you even more to hear about it.
1: It's just such a terrible, awful story. And she's like, well, okay, but tell me anyways. And he's like, okay, (laughs) and goes on and on about what happened.
0: Yeah, a very great deal. Of this entire scene is just tedious recitation of what's happened in the past. And then
1: right when he gets to the where he says, But it was all a lie! Posthumous
0: jumps out and says, Italian fiend? Egregious murderer? Thief? Anything that's due to all the villain's past and being to come? He's very angry, starts calling out about how he misses Imogen. And, uh, you know, killing her. Yeah. Imogen steps forward and says, Peace, my lord, here, here. And he just hits her. Yeah. <laughs> Shells have a play of this, that was scornful page, There lie, their part, and just slaps her because he doesn't like being interrupted. <laughs> yep. And then Pisanio jumps in and says, Oh no! You didn't kill Imogen until now. (laughs) And everyone's just going, wait, what is going on? Yes, Cymbeline has one of his many lines in this scene. He says, does the world go round? Just, what is going on? Mm -hmm. Basically, the masks come off, and she says,
1: "Pisanio, get away from me, you gave me poison. (laughs) And he's like, what? And the Queen is like, oh yeah, I forgot to mention the Queen poisoned everyone.
0: Yeah. In addition to everything else, the queen is just a list of evil things. And meanwhile, the princes are offside saying, oh, so that's why you're not dead. Yeah. And then they all get together, apologize. Everyone's happy. And then, of course, the father, the supposed father of the princes reveals himself. And says, by the way, these are your sons. Yeah. And the king, of course, is pleased enough with the return of his sons that he can forgive the betrayal of stealing them. And so he pardons
1: him. And then uh, Posthumus and Iacomo, Iachimo's like, you get to kill me now.
0: This is actually a good bit. He says, I am down again, but now my heavy conscience sinks my knee, as then your force did. So you are forced So So you hit me once to make me fall down, but now I'm kneeling to you. Take that life, beseech you. Which I so often owe, but your ring first, and hear the bracelet of the truest princess that ever swore her faith. Mm-hmm. Posthumus's reply is great. Kneel not to me. The power that I have on you is to spare you, the malice towards you to forgive you, live, and deal with others better. Mm-hmm. Great, great line. And then posthumous like, prophecy. prophecy yeah. <laughs> I have this goofy thing that doesn't mean anything, apparently. Mm-hmm. Could this soothsayer happens to be in the room? Please take a look at it.
1: And then it's just the rest of the play is the soothsayer explaining how the prophecy relates to what just happened. Yeah,
0: how there's like a dumb pun in there, mm-hmm. and how the stately cedar is the royal heritage, and how the branches that were severed were the two princes, which are now being reattached.
1: Yeah. Ugh. The very end, Simblant says,
0: by the way, I am going to start paying my taxes again. (laughs) (laughs) And this actually makes it a better history, because in real history, it was the king's son, his heir, that actually agreed to pay the taxes again. So the normal ending would have been, and we're done. (laughs) Yep. And yeah, that's the play.
1: I mean, basically a lot of stuff happened, and everything worked out
0: in the end. Yeah, very little actually happened. So, let's let's talk about the performances and interpretations. So, there have been performances as one of the rarer plays. It's one of those things that shows up every 50, 100 years throughout history. And and a few people, you know, your famous Shakespeare players, your Garricks, those sort of people mm-hmm. have been successful with it as they were successful with everything, but we
1: can't exactly watch those ones either. Yeah,
0: it's never made a serious mark. The only performance that anyone has ready access to is the movie which is about as boring as you'd expect.
1: Mm -hmm. And we saw the movie. We couldn't even watch it. It was so long. We had to take it into two parts. We had to take a break. Yeah, intermission.
0: A multi-day intermission. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so let's talk about our personal takes on it. My personal opinion is that with really brutal trimming, if you just cut out huge swaths of this play. Take that final scene, cut out almost everything. Mm -hmm. Take out that beginning scene where they summarize everything. Basically take out a lot of scenes where they just say, what has just happened that we just saw? I think that you could turn this into an interesting play because the princes are cool, the battle could be fun, the entire thing about the betrayal and the guy popping out of the trunk is a cool you know, visual image. There's a lot of neat stuff here. I think it's just shrouded by all this stuff where it's just people talking about stuff.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. It also could have really easily been done as a tragedy.
0: Oh, if things go wrong at the end. Yeah. That would be interesting. Yeah, like just a completely different take.
1: Posthumus accidentally kills Imogen at the end. Yeah. And then suddenly everyone starts murdering everyone.
0: <laughs> that is a good Shakespeare tragedy. Yep. Yeah, that would actually be a really interesting thing to do. I mean, I, I obviously don't have the writing chops to do that. But yeah. That would be really neat. Because there's a lot of betrayal all tied up in that last scene, Mm -hmm. but instead of doing anything, it all just fizzles. It all just goes away. They're basically just like, you know, everything worked out,
1: I don't feel the need to take revenge on you. Yeah, yeah,
0: everyone kind of turns out okay, Mm -hmm. so nobody is angry, which isn't actually a very reasonable interpretation of humankind.
1: Stuff like that does happen. People are just like, okay, well, no harm done. Other than all these people who probably died in this war. (laughs) They weren't royalty, they don't matter. That's true.
0: Okay, so your take on it. This is the worst Shakespeare play we've done. Who? I think you might be right.
1: I mean... We haven't done all of them yet, Yeah, like, and um, I, I've heard Troy Timon of Athens a, is
0: pretty bad. There are some good bits in Timon of Athens, but there are some good bits in here, too. Yeah, there's good bits in every Shakespeare
1: play. I yeah. mean, a bad Shakespeare play, for the most part, is still a good play. This is not a good play,
0: though. <laughs> yeah, I I really can't argue with you. It probably is the worst one we've done. We'll
1: probably do a wrap-up episode eventually where we say, these are the best and worst plays o- overall, Yeah, and I think this might be my worst one. Mm-hmm. I really like The Princes. Yeah, I think they good. are a good... Imogen's a great character. And Imogen yeah. is an interesting character, too. But they had too much other stuff going on. Yeah. If it had been a play about just the family...
0: You could cut the war down a lot. Cut out all of Lucius. Just say, like, there's a war going on. It doesn't matter why. The Cymbeline as a character is irrelevant. Mm-hmm.
1: You could also, instead of having posture, the whole Yakimo posthumous thing... Instead, just have Posthumus be a decent guy who isn't out to kill his mistress.
0: Sure, I mean, you need a reason to separate, then.
1: Exactly. He's just been exiled, and she disguises herself as a boy to go find him. Hey, there you go. That would be interesting. And runs into her brothers on the way, and they have but really, a grand adventure. Oh, really, let's not try to
0: write an alternate play. Let's just leave okay. it as it is and say that we don't like it very much. Yeah, I, I uh, this is already a good play, though. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about our listener contributions. I'm trying to bring our listeners into this as mm-hmm. all people fail to do in podcasts so we've got a bunch of comments on the old blog tear him for his bad verses which i think is a great name says that the bbc is doing a shakespeare season and they've done a special qi episode of stephen fry's quite interesting program is it's a fun show is doing one about shakespeare it's i'm certain available on the internet somewhere Uh, he also would like us to do hamlet which, you know, I'm sure we'll do at some point. We started doing Hamlet a little bit. Yeah, we did an introduction to Hamlet, which I think we did quite well. Mm -hmm.
1: Hamlet is, like, the hardest way to do though. Yeah, yeah.
0: So someone suggests that if you have Netflix, that you could check out Patrick Stewart's Macbeth. Of course, Patrick Stewart is fantastic, Macbeth is fantastic. I haven't got around to seeing it, but I intend to. Macbeth has been
1: my favorite of the tragedies.
0: Uh, That same contributor has pointed out that uh, she has seen a first folio. Really? Which is pretty cool. Also, at the uh, British Library, they have a Magna Carta that she got to see. Mm -hmm. That's pretty cool. I know I've never seen either of those in person. I might have seen her first folio, but I can't remember. Someone points out that Richard II is also available on Netflix.
1: Mm-hmm. That's the other strong contender
0: for worst of the plays
1: we've seen. I think.
0: I, I, yeah, I think Richard II has some good bits. Yeah, in it. Richard II
1: is more of a medium play than outright bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Speaking of things that are bad, uh, Dogberry, uh, we had we had our big poll of is Dogberry terrible? End result: seven votes for no, or six votes for no, seven votes for yes.
0: Yeah. So some people actually thought there was a good dogberry out there. Yeah, um, I'd I'd like to see one. I think he's got a lot of potential.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'd like to see the uh, Joss Whedon indeed, one. Indeed,
0: yeah. If if anyone can make a flippant character. It's mm-hmm. Joss Whedon.
1: And he's performed by Nathan Fillion, so...
0: Yeah, so it's a double whammy. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's just about it. Like I said earlier, uh, Twelfth Night is going to be our next play.
1: I will tell you this, Twelfth Night, my favorite Shakespeare play.
0: There you go. So that'll be exciting to look forward to. If mm-hmm. you want to help us out, you can go to iTunes and give us a good rating or give us a comment on the review thing that, that helps you know make the podcast available to other potential listeners. And you can leave us comments at Bardcast.blogspot.com And money. <laughs> I mean, what? Not, no chilling, no shilling. We've done enough of that, I'm sure. Oh, not by a long shot. So, thanks a lot for listening, and we'll see you next time.